Hello, and welcome to the People Still Read Books podcast. I am Will Leach, your host. This is episode, it's been a couple weeks, so it's like 18, I think 17, one of those. Anyway, I'm Will Leach. Uh, we finally have Margaret Coker, by the way. Uh, I was supposed to get to her last week, but I screwed up the times because I, uh, one, th- one thing that's really cool to do is to screw up the time in an interview with an incredible <laughs> award-winning journalist who you really admire and can't wait to talk to and then get the date, the time wrong on the interview. Well done. I'm a professional. Anyway, um, by, by the way, we are, we are five weeks, six weeks away today from the release of How Lucky, my book. Please pre-order it. I don't know if you saw, we got a very nice notice from Stephen King, of all people, about it this week. Uh, I've talked about it enough so far that I need to stop or someone's going to start hitting me with the two before. But nevertheless, fair to say, very exciting. Uh, he said some very nice things about How Lucky. But I'm about to say some very nice things about The Spymaster at Baghdad by Margaret Coker. She's a longtime reporter for The New York Times. She now runs The Current uh, in Savannah, Georgia. And she uh, was the bureau, Baghdad bureau chief for The Times and wrote this incredible story. It's a true story. Uh, it's very well meticulously reported uh, about uh, basically... Uh, um, the Tinker Tailor soldier, soldier Spy, uh, but of Iraq and uh, of Iraqi citizens. And it's really, really impressive. So the book is Spy Master of Baghdad. I'm excited to talk to her about it. Uh, f- uh, as always, uh, follow us on Twitter at StillReadBooks. Email me, peoplestillreadbooks at gmail.com. But right now, here is Margaret Coker. I'm delighted. Delighted. Delighted is the word. I've already done an intro for my guest today, so I will be less effusive now than I was in the intro. Not because I... Uh, don't feel effusive toward my guest today. I've just already done it, and I don't want to make the listeners go through it twice. It is Margaret Coker, former Baghdad Bureau Chief for the New York Times and author of the terrific book that I have many, many questions about, The Spy Master of Baghdad, A True Story of Bravery, Family, and Patriotism in the Battle Against ISIS. Ms. Coker, thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so... I have many, many questions. The book is uh, uh, the book is terrific, and it is it is a uh, it's strange because you know I always I always feel a little guilty. And I'm curious about you, how you feel as a journalist about this. I always feel a little guilty when I'm reading something that's real and true and happened to real people, and I still find myself reading the book as if it is a thriller. Like I always feel kind of bad about doing that because the, the, you know th- this book is is meticulously reported and incredibly well put together, but it's also absolutely a riveting read. And I'm curious, just like the the idea when you first like obviously you were you covered uh, uh, what was going on in Baghdad, Iraq for for many years for the New York Times. When did you first get introduced to the idea of the of to to the Falcons, the 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 kind of the the group that makes the driving thrust of the book? Yeah, well, um, it really was an honor to be able to. Um, gain their trust and be the person who who is able to tell their story, at least to an English-speaking world. And the Falcons have been a very secretive, uh, very elite um, counterterrorism group that has, um, you know, sort of come to life in the ashes of Saddam Hussein's regime. And they have been a key partner in these forever wars, the war against terror, especially the, um, the battles against Al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State in Iraq. But um, their spy master, um, the man that we know as Abu Ali al-Basri, he is a man who lives in the shadows. He's a man very comfortable in his crowded office, surrounded by files, sort of the keeper of the secrets. He's not a man who likes the spotlight. And so, you know, it took me many, many, many months um, for him to agree to finally meet with me in 2017. Although, you know, he's, his group is, is, uh, 
is a force that you hear about all the time. You know, you're sitting in tea shops and, uh, you know, sort of Nargila bars around Baghdad and, uh, you know, veteran Iraqi military officers and intelligence agents will tell you, you know, we've, we've done this and we've accomplished that. And um, they give all the credit to the Falcons. But the man who um, who can take credit for many of these operations is someone who just never wanted to talk. And so it's really exciting to know that you saw this as, as a thrilling read, because when I finally got a chance to to talk to both Abu Ali al-Basri and um, the rest of his uh, band of brothers, you know, they like telling their stories, just like just like um, U.S. Um, military <laughs> men and, and service women do. They tell their stories in very thrilling terms. And so there's a trick to... Um, being able to um, to do justice to, to all of their operations, to be able to confirm what they've told you and make sure you're not uh, telling tales, but but also um, you know to bring to life these like thrilling secretive operations um, uh, with with um, people who whose names are hard to pronounce and in places that most Americans have never been to, and um, and so yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm I know that they're excited that uh, the book is being very well received here in the U.S. Yeah, and it's one thing to be able to tell all these stories and to, to get people to talk. It's another thing to get people whose job is literally to be secretive and to with their lives on the line all the time. How did you like? How, what was the process like to get uh, Al Basri, Basri, Basari, and uh, and the Falcons to speak to you in the first place? Yeah, so I um I I as you mentioned, I've been in and out of Iraq as a journalist um since 2003 since the US the original US invasion. You know, I've, I've watched and chronicled some of the first drafts of of this new history um since 2003, the fall of Saddam, the um you know, the tales of woe through the mid 2000s when Baghdad was known as the murder capital of the world where you had multiple terror attacks happening in the capital every single day. And you know, my Iraqi friends would go off to work or kiss their kids and send them off to school and nobody would know really if you were going to come home alive because the violence was so terrible. You know, the U.S. Um, didn't ever really crack the nut of making Baghdad safe. And so fast forward very quickly to 2014. I mean, that was a time when the Islamic State reared its ugly head, when it took over a third of the territory of the nation of Iraq. And it came within about 80 miles of, of, of entering the capital. And in those days, in 2014, you know, there were these emergency evacuation orders in place. Embassies were taking their staff out of the country in, in you know, record time. Um, Israeli, or, sorry, Iraqis were very worried about their future. And um, I went back in 2017 as the Baghdad bureau chief for the New York Times. And it was like a tale of two different cities, um, from that <laughs> chaos and fear to a capital city that was undergoing a renaissance. Um, people were out on the streets at night. Kids were playing soccer. Kids were eating ice cream. Kids were playing on playgrounds. And small businesses had reinvested in their businesses. It was safe, and people felt secure. And I just wanted to know who had finally made Baghdad safe. And so that started a like a very basic question and a journalistic inquiry that took me on about a six-month journey to find the man who wanted to take credit for it, and that was Abu Ali al-Basri. The reason why he decided at this point, when I, you know, it was probably my, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth time of requesting an interview with him, he decided to talk to me this time because he had this 
enormously um, wonderful story to tell, which was that he had accomplished this amazing wartime feat of espionage. He had managed to put his man undercover inside the Islamic State and therefore help um, help save Baghdad from, from terror attacks. Um, his undercover officer, um, Captain Harla Sudani, he managed to foil around four dozen terror attacks that were headed for Baghdad. And in the in the process, save thousands of lives. They also helped tip off the Americans about where uh, the leader of the Islamic State was hiding and lots of other amazing operations. But he's not a man who wants to toot his own horn. He was very successful because he stays in the shadows. But he also felt this weight of guilt and moral obligation towards this undercover officer, a man that he lost behind enemy lines. And he wanted to do right by the, you know, from the memory of his fallen uh, officer, but also do right by by Captain Harless family. And so he decided, like so many people in Washington, so many government officials, he decided to use a journalistic vessel in order to um, accomplish those goals. And so I became the person to tell the first story about the Falcons. And I did that in a front page story for the New York Times. And um, and so that started um, a beautiful relationship. And then both Abu Ali al-Basri, our spy master, the Sudani family, um, and all the other main characters of my book decided they wanted, um, they wanted to work with me in order to do a full sort of book-length treatment um, and history uh, about them. And Is there a sense that part of this too, like one of the things is that it's funny, I wonder if someone didn't know anything about this book and they heard me describe it and they heard, and, and then they heard you talk a little because we had not said the name or the nationality of anyone that had worked in these counterterrorism units. I think they, their assumption have been like, oh, so there's this awesome American counter spy unit that was like coming together. But to me, one of the most amazing things about this is not only are they able to do this to protect, to, to, you know, to, to protect where they live and, and what they've gone through, but like he's a, like, He's a spy master in the way you describe him, even the way the first time you meet him, like he definitely feels like a spy master, like a John LeCar <laughs> sort sort of idea. I'm curious, do they like how do they feel and you talk about this a little bit in the book, but how do they feel about the Americans in general, like helpful, not helpful? How has that even progressed? Uh, and how pay, much do they pay attention? You said you said earlier that they're excited to see this book being received well in the United States. I'm just curious generally that how they feel after having gone through this and having been the people that actually did make uh, Baghdad safe, what their thoughts about the whole American experiment is. Yeah, well, there's, you know, the, the, there's a very, very complex, um, you know, history between Iraqis and, and the Americans. You know, there's, there's so many people. And, you know, one thing that I tried to do with my book, I mean, just quite, quite um, bluntly, you know, I'm a, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm a child of, of military parents. Um, you know, most of the men in my family have served, you know, I grew up watching uh, World War Two movies um, at home on Saturdays on TBS. You know, I, um, you know, we, we are the kind of people that, that grew up going to military battlefields. Like, we care about service and public service. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to become a journalist. But, you know, I've read a whole lot of history from those former wars. And we know as Americans about our allies and about our partners. We know about the French resistance. We know about um, Polish freedom fighters. We know about the Brits who helped us defeat the Nazis and so on and so forth. And here we have 
the war on terror, which has lasted longer than any of the any of the wars that that America has fought. And we really don't know much about the partners that we have forged as as Americans and as the U.S. Armed Forces, you know, in in these ongoing um, battles. And so I really wanted to, as a journalist, be able to bring Iraqis back as main characters of their own history. And there are plenty of of Iraqis who have suited up every day since 2003 to make their nation better and make it better. Um, on behalf of and with the encouragement and help of the Americans. And so these are the Falcons, right? These are people who have dedicated their lives and sometimes lost their lives, you know, on on behalf of um, this, this ideal of making their nation a better place to live. And they don't you know, they don't talk about politics. You know, I've, I spent now, you know, two and a half years, you know, sort of deep research and and um, building these these friendships and relationships um, with the Falcons. And nobody talks about international politics. You know, they talk about their nation. They talk about their duties. They talk about their struggles. And they want as much help as, as they can get. What they start to complain about is that the Americans have wavered in, in their support, quite frankly. You know, over the course of the last 17, 18 years, Americans have gone hot and cold about the way in which um, that we're going to support Iraqis who still strive for freedom and who str- still strive for a better way of life. And so what I think is um, important for readers who, who haven't thought about Iraq in a very long time, if at all, I mean, I hope it's, it's one of the takeaways of this book is that you don't actually have to know much about the Middle East. And you can, you can just be thrilled by, by these tales of espionage and daring do and these band of brothers who are unlikely heroes. And maybe it'll start helping you think about, um, you, the reader, help start making you think about, you know, the ways in which that partnerships are important for, for America now, you know, in the, in the place where we're at as a country. Yeah. I wanted to ask about that because a large part of this too is like, you know, they are dealing with domestic terrorism that I think is clearly, I think we've actually even had an official shift from the state department to saying that domestic terrorism is now the larger worry in the United States. Are there lessons to be learned uh, from the success that the Falcons had that maybe American law enforcement or some American groups will be able to, uh, might come in handy uh, in the weeks or months coming forward? The September 11th attacks back in um, 2001. Of course, we have we have been horrified by an external threat that we've known as, you know, fundamentalist, violent Islam. And we've been on the search inside America for these sorts of people, either sleeper cells or traitors who want to do us harm. From the Iraqi point of view, though, this has always been a, um, you know, a mixture of both a homegrown threat and an international threat. And uh, what, you know, what my book does show is that the Iraqis, the Falcons in particular, you know, even when America's, um, you, you know, focus has, has wavered a bit, you know, they have, they've had to keep after this, this homegrown threat, because what I think we don't appreciate and don't understand is that the at least the the branch of Al Qaeda in Iraq, you know, it was run by Iraqis, and the Islamic State, you know, its leadership were all Iraqis too, and so this really was a homegrown threat that they had to manage day by day, hour after hour, and the way that they've done it um, so successfully, the way that the Falcons have done it specifically, 
is not by the use of torture. In fact, there was a very, very, you know, clear kind of moral, um, moral uh, um, code that Abu Ali al-Basri has instituted with the Falcons, which is that in order to be successful, in order to actually find the real threats and the real enemies instead of the um, maybe sort of kind of enemies is that you have to gain uh, an informer's trust. You have to have a very robust um, network of human sources, human informants, and then double agents. And only with human intelligence and trustworthy human intelligence can you actually get to the root of of this homegrown problem. And I think that, um, you know, watching and covering the, um, the war on terror since 2001 and watching the way in which the American intelligence uh, agencies, both domestic and foreign, have, have built themselves up into these powerhouses of electronic surveillance, right? The, the, the power that um, American intelligence agencies have right now to suck down every single piece of every, every keystroke that you, you push on, on your computer and every conversation you have on your iPhone, they can record it and they can monitor it. But they don't know what's going on in secret. They don't know what's going on in rooms. They don't know what's going on with people who are offline. And the Falcons have done that incredibly well. And that's how they've been such great partners with the Americans in the battle against the Islamic State. So yeah, I think that's probably the the, the best and most um, important takeaway um, for for American law enforcement now. Um, to be as successful as the Falcons have been, you should really move away from electronic surveillance and think about human networks and human informants first. Yeah, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're on our way there yet. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, I'm curious. You can have, you know, you can, as a spy master, you can win these psychological battles um, and psychological relationships with your sources. And in order to get someone who is ideologically driven, whether they're a Islamist or whether they're a white nationalist, you have to convince them that betraying their own is in their own interest. And um, and so that that takes human intelligence. And so it's time, perhaps, to you know, sort of dial back to to Cold War tactics and and figure out human informants better than we have, um, at least at least in the world of Islamic fundamentalism over the last fifteen years. What, what happened with I? I've seen it since I've read your, read your book. I, I went went back and looked up some information about Al Basri because he's such a such a uh, fascinating character. He is is he not? Uh, uh, he is not in charge of the Falcon intelligence. So did something happen in February? Could you explain to me what 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 I missed with that? Did anything happen? What what exactly happened with his removal or his replacement? What what exactly did happen? really remarkable things about him as both a political operator and an intelligence professional is that he's a, he's been able to, um, to really manage these, um, you know, the, the bare knuckle battles, um, within the corridors of power in Baghdad since 2003, you know, he's survived four different, uh, government changes, four different prime ministers, multiple different U S presidents. And, um, and, you know, has, has a successful, um, successful professional um, career to, to show for it. And here we have a situation in Iraq, I mean, since last summer, 
Um, if your um, listeners will remember, you know, after the September 11th attacks, there was this huge congressional um, committee um, that produced uh, what we know as the 9-11 Commission and the 9-11 Commission Report. Mm -hmm. And they concluded very, very basically that interagency rivalries kept lots of pieces of intelligence from being shared. And that is the basic failure um, which uh, allowed the 9-11 attacks to happen. Um, in Iraq, that is um, also the case. There is huge interagency rivalries. And so um, the man who is currently the prime minister of Iraq is one of Abu Ali al-Basri's um, sort of most intimate rivals. Um, he became prime minister um, after being the head of the National Intelligence Agency, a rival intelligence agency, for about three years. And so they have fought um, political battles over the last three years, definitely during the, the war against this, the Islamic State, about who can take credit for what um, operations. And so as of February, um, the prime minister has taken a bit of bureaucratic revenge against his rival and uh, <laughs> sidelined Abu Ali al-Basri. And that's unfortunate. Um, it's unfortunate, I think, for the effectiveness of counterterrorism operations. But um, but in the world of backstabbing politicians, I guess it's par for the course. Um, the thing is, though, that this prime minister is probably not long for his seat. There's going to be elections again in the fall. So don't count Abu Ali al-Basri out just yet. Oh, yeah, I'm not. I've read the book. Don't worry. I'm not, uh, to say the very least. I'm curious. So you are in Savannah now. You live in Savannah, fellow, fellow Georgian. I'm in Athens. You're in Savannah. Are you done with are, – uh, well, well, I want to get to what you're doing in, in Georgia in a moment. But, like, you obviously – you've been in Iraq, around for Iraq, Iraq for a long time. It's obviously something you covered. Have, are, have you been – when was the last time was that you were there, and are you – are you are you are you done, or are you are you up in the short term, or you need a break, or what? Explain that where, where you are with the rock right now. An American, you know, we're we're actually we've we spent a um, a large portion of our careers um, as foreign correspondents, um, both for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. But we've had this house in Savannah for years and years and years. The problem was trying to make Savannah our full time job because coastal Georgia. It's been a very long time since ambitious journalism and coastal Georgia went together. And so um, I um, I had this opportunity um, to um, to have what in essence, is, was my first book contract to write this book about the spy master of Baghdad and the Falcons. And so I, um, I left uh, the New York Times. I spent a year, year and a half writing this book. And I did all my research in Iraq in um, 2019 and 2020. I came back to Savannah full time in 2020 to write the book. Um, went to Baghdad for the last time um, in January 20. January 2020. And, mm -hmm. um, and then COVID hit. So I had um, a book deadline and COVID hit all at the same time. And so <laughs> my book was actually finished and I needed something else to do. And while I was back here in Savannah full time, you know, sort of getting deeper into my social networks and, you know, friends and family networks, you know, there, there was um, a sensibility that just wasn't my own. It was that, you know, a lot of people felt like um, coastal Georgia needed more ambitious journalism and there, and someone, they would they would pay for someone to fill this news vacuum. And so 
um, you know, as my grandmother always said, the spirit moves in mysterious ways. And so I volunteered to help start up um, a new investigative news organization, um, leaned into my COVID life and my Savannah life. And so um, last fall, we started up uh, The Current, which is a nonprofit news organization. We are community funded. We believe that um, news, high quality news should be, um, you know, it's a community right and not a for-profit commodity. And so, um, so yeah, we're reinventing public uh, public. Well, please. First off, I can't. I, I can't. Of, of all the things you've done in journalism, uh, I will say, uh, uh, someone that that is from not only lives in Georgia, but is from a small town that has lost its local journalism in in rural Illinois. There, uh, there are a few things that are more important, to be entirely honest, and uh, and and particularly, you know, it's not that le- as if Georgia is lacking for stories uh, right now, <laughs> to say the very least. And I, it, it, there is a certain like. Uh, notions too because there is you know i lived in new york city for 13 years i've been here for in georgia for about seven and it is truly remarkable i knew when i was moving to georgia that i was moving to an interesting place i my wife is from columbus georgia and we uh, moved to athens and so we knew it was interesting but boy is it interesting in georgia right now it's really just kind of a fascinating place across the board and so are you i like i can't think of a better time to 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 be a part of a project like this because because to me the interesting thing about georgia is not just like it's not just like what's all happening with voting rights and 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 the some huge elections coming up next year but it's also the idea that each of these communities are all like it's all Georgia but like first off there's like 4000 counties in the states which i never quite realized but like so each of these communities are so disparate and so different uh that that i feel like every single story every single area needs this kind of coverage do you feel like almost like excited and rejuvenated uh not that you were lacking juvenated or you're without juvenate uh but if you have you are re- do you feel rejuvenated now that like there's so much to cover in georgia right now yeah absolutely i mean i i got into journalism you know as as i mentioned you know as you know, a family that is deeply enmeshed in public service. And, you know, the best kind of American journalism is a public service. And, and, you know, covering your communities is is incredibly important. You know, I started going overseas um, as a journalist, um, not because I didn't like America or didn't want to live here. It's because I actually felt like, you know, it was a duty and an obligation to go cover countries where um, and tell Americans what their nation was doing in their name, you know. And after the nine eleven attacks, that became um, that became a really um, a really strong motivator. But now, you know, in America, Americans need to know what their government is doing here as much as anywhere else in the world. You know, we, we, <laughs> yes. we, and and you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's just lots of communities that have lost that trusted local news source. Um, you know, I love reading the New York Times. I love reading the Wall Street Journal. But they don't care about this part of Georgia where I live, and it's not their job to cover this part of Georgia where I live, and nobody else is doing it. And so um, if you want to know about, you know, the toxic pollution that are in coastal Georgia waterways, um, too bad. I mean, until the current showed up, nobody in the state of Georgia was covering it. The AJC, which is um, my alma mater, I, you know, I I started my career um, working for the Cox newspaper chain. They used to have, you know, their motto used to be, we're covering Dixie like the do. You know, they had regional bureaus. They had more than, you know, more than a dozen Georgia bureaus. And now they cover Metro Atlanta. Well, guess what? I mean, as we all learned um, from from the elections last year, there's much more to Georgia than Metro Atlanta. So, 
so yeah, I, I find it to be, um, I, I'm, I am definitely rejuvenated. Um, I'm definitely excited <laughs> because, um, we're, we're doing journalism the way that I've always wanted to do it. You know, I want to cover communities that don't normally see themselves in, in mainstream media. Um, I want to cover local news that's impactful. I want to hold government officials accountable and, um, and no better time like the present to do it right here in my backyard. Yeah, I bet you're annoying a lot of people there that were, that were used to being covered that way. So that's great. Like that's yeah, that's the idea, right? That's the idea, and it's not just me. You know, I've um, we're we're a woman-run newsroom right now. Um, my partner in journalism is uh, a woman named Susan Catron, who is uh, one of the most veteran um, Georgia newswomen there are. She ran the uh, Savannah paper here for many years. She also ran the Columbus paper for many years, and um, mm-hmm. and so you know we're we're trying to rebuild a pipeline of of young professional talent in Georgia. Um, we have a great um, local historic black university here, Savannah State. We have Georgia Southern. You know, the idea that that journalism, you know, doing journalism costs money and journalists should be considered professionals, not hacks. And trying to recreate trust and rebuild trust is important, but also to make it affordable for journalists to stay in journalism and do their job well. That's another thing we're trying to, to tackle here. So um, I will quickly plug um, our, our new plug, site, plug, plug. we are www.thecurrentga.org. So come see what we're doing. Definitely, definitely, definitely do so. Do you, a couple more questions before I get to our final question that I ask everyone in the show. Do you, uh, you, uh, do you miss a rock? Like you, you, you spent so much time there and the time that you were seeing it toward the end was seemed like one of the best places. The, the way you even described the way Baghdad is found, and maybe be like, well, Baghdad sounds like a really nice place. I'd love to go play soccer in a park. To be fair, everything seems like a nice place in a pandemic right now, just it's not my house. Uh, but I'm curious, like, like, do you miss it? Do you, are you eager to get back? Yeah, I mean, Baghdad, Baghdad is a, is a wonderful city. And, and it, um, it deserves, it deserves to be on the world map in terms of global capitals. And, you know, it is, it's a place where, um, I mean, it's the cradle of civilization, right? I mean, this is, this is where, um, you know, in, in the, the ancient Mesopotamian breadbasket, this is where Abraham hails from just south of Baghdad. You know, there, there were, were amazing civilizations that rose and fell, um, in Baghdad. You have one of the world's great rivers that runs through the city. You have an old town and these fantastically exotic and amazing, you know, covered markets. Um, it's a place where, um, where people people should know more about, and hopefully my my book will will help um, will help that education. But yeah, I've got great Iraqi friends; they're so hospitable. I mean, anybody who's a who's a Southerner will will go and appreciate it. You know, they, these are these are people who will feed you until you can't eat anymore. They'll people people who will talk <laughs> your ear off with great stories, and um, and so yeah, Iraqis um, Iraqis are some of my favorite people, and I do miss it. And um, COVID regulations, as soon as I'm able to uh, to fly again, I'm going to go visit. Um, I've sent copies of my books there. So hopefully we'll have a um, an in-person reunion sometime soon. So my last question, I ask this on every uh, on every show. Uh, you, This is your first book, correct? And so what was it like 
when you got when you got to do the unboxing when they sent them to you it's always a little different when the book happens during the pandemic <laughs> i feel like that's a different experience my book is coming out in may and i'm not doing the tour that i or or going to a bunch of bookstores but i've heard actually can be just as satisfying to do uh to do the virtual stuff but i'm curious when you've picked up this this i'm, I'm literally you can't see me but i'm holding this in my hand and it's substantial and it's powerful and it's entirely yours how did it feel when you saw this thing and this thing you'd been working on for so long and held it in your hands for the first time oh yeah it was it was a fantastic um moment of joy for sure um yeah the the pandemic has has been kind of crazy uh, you know the book was was originally scheduled to be published last summer so so you know this very thrilling cover that my publishers at Harper Collins have given me you know I, I originally had these daydreams that you know people would be taking the book to the beach and and you know reading about thrilling spies um and then it was delayed and delayed and delayed and then um, when I opened the box, uh, pulled out my first book, it was kind of like, you know, old school week. It was like going to a college graduation <laughs> where you actually, you know, got to see all these people that you loved and you forgot about because it had been six months really since, since uh, you know, the book kind of left my system. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was lovely on, on many different levels. And then when the books finally reached Baghdad, even better, because then we had um, a very joyous oh, yeah. Zoom call where Everyone got to um, congratulations. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, uh, uh, Margaret Coker, the book is, uh, I don't need to tell you that the book is, you know what it is. You wrote it. Uh, the Spy Master of Baghdad, a true story of bravery, family, and patriotism in the battle against ISIS. The book is wonderful. And the site is the, uh, the, the currentga.org, correct? All right. Well, everyone, go check that out. The book is wonderful. Ms. Coker, it is an honor. Uh, I've been very excited when I saw that you that you were going to be in Georgia because this is I've lived here for I guess gee whiz about eight years now, and it's my home now. And like to see the quality of uh, a journalist that you are and the quality of work you're doing, uh, investing in 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 my state uh, is uh, is exciting. So thank you for that, and please continue. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Come visit us in Savannah. Oh, believe you me, my second shot, April 26th, and I'm going to be running through the streets. Be prepared. Be prepared for that. Uh, and I'll, I'll let you know first. I won't just come by your door. Um, all right. Uh, be, be safe. Uh, the book is The Spy Master of Baghdad by Margaret Coker, wherever books are sold. We'll be back with another podcast next week. This is the People's Soviet Book Podcast. Bye, everyone.